your Bible open this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and uh, we're going to read from one of the most magnificent chapters in God's Word. And uh, let me say that at the close of the message today, if you have not picked up one, as you go out, out in the area of the baptistry, the explanation that I'm going to give you here in church uh, this morning or in chapel this morning is written up. Uh, Let uh, Dr. Dave rub off on me here in church. Well, uh, the, the explanation is written up in this little book on baptism. And it has some beautiful things in it, by the way, because uh, these are baptistries that we photographed in North Africa from the first five centuries of the church. Uh, Not nearly all of them we photographed, but they are all immersionist baptistries, two of them in Augustine's church at Hippo Regius. And uh, so, uh, very interesting that uh, Augustine knew One of them is at the door of the church. Baptists have always said that baptism is the door to the church. And sure enough, right there at the door to Augustine's church is an immersionist baptistry. And inside there is still another one. So this book is free, by the way. Won't cost you a penny, but it is free to you. And I hope you'll take advantage of it and get one as you go out. Now in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, beginning in verse 20, let me read our text, or actually material preceding the text, but leading to it. But now is Christ risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he, um, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father and when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Now, I don't have time to develop that today, but I just want you to notice who wins in the end. Our Lord is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and all the erstwhile dictators and rulers in the world have not a leg to stand on before him. And he will rule and reign until all has been put under his power. Well, he must reign until all of his enemies are under his feet. And the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he who has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. You are witnessing in your day and time a huge debate over whether or not our Lord is subordinate to the Heavenly Father. And the answer to that question is yes and no. He is not subordinate to the Heavenly Father in the sense that he is fully God, just as much as God the Father is God. But he is subordinate to God the Father, as this text makes crystal clear in certain areas of obedience to him. He he is the one who said, I do only what my Father gives me to do. And now, 
he is, the Father is exempted. And now, when all things are made subject to him, watch this, the Son of Man himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. My father was a minister of the gospel, and his son is a minister of the gospel. He is fully man. I am fully man. But in my home, there was no question that while I was equal in essence to my father, I was also subordinate to him. And that would hold at any time in the future also. And so it is clear from God's word, let that be established. Now we get to the text. Here's the text. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts in Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat, drink, and uh, for tomorrow we die. Now I want you to think about the text that is before us. What on earth does this strange Bible verse mean? Otherwise, what shall they do who are baptized for the dead? Well, there are two major views out there that are held by various scholars. Most scholars candidly admit that they don't have the foggiest notion what this means. And that is true often of portions of the Bible. We declare that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant Word of God. But the only inerrant interpreter of the Bible is the Holy Spirit. Consequently, what we're doing is making our best effort to come to grips with what the Scripture says. And all of us who are studying the Bible hard have a list of questions that we want to ask God when we get to heaven. What on earth did you mean by this? And we will doubtless learn a lot because no one of us has it down. So many of the scholars just say we don't really know what it means. There are really three possible views that have been put out there. View number one is that these new converts were being baptized to replace the ranks of those who had died. View number two is similar to it, and it is a view that when a Christian died, if there were new believers to be baptized, they were baptized over the graves of those, uh, oftentimes in the catacombs, the series of tunnels where Christians were buried in Rome and other places. Now, of course, as you can guess, that's not a very good interpretation because it's hard to immerse people over the grave of somebody else in a catacomb. And in fact, I would dare say it is virtually impossible. So we have to reject both of those two views as being without foundational support. All we can say about them is that they 
show the vividness of the human imagination. There is a third view that is held by our Mormon friends. If you were to go out to Utah and uh, uh, to that area of the country, you would discover that there is a huge bank there set aside in the mountain. It's not a bank for money, though there's plenty of that too. It is a bank of information about your ancestors. Mormons believe that this is substitute baptism. Baptism for the dead is done by someone who knows that he has relatives who died not being Mormons. And since baptism is somehow important, he is baptized again and again and again. It may be the only legitimate argument against a large family because if you have a large family and they all die and they're not Mormons, then you've got to be baptized so many times to cover all of them. And so that's what this chapter supposedly means. But of course, you know and I know that that is an implausible explanation, that it does no truth to the text at all. How am I then to understand this text of being baptized for the dead? Number one, you read it in context. Isn't that an amazingly simple truth about biblical interpretation? Read it in context and you will begin to get the meaning of it. What is the context of this verse? This verse doesn't just hang out there on nothing. It is a viable part of 1 Corinthians 15. And from the beginning to the end of 1 Corinthians 15, it is one magnificent chapter about the resurrection of the body from the dead. Now, when we die, Paul says, we don't need to worry about that because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Someday, a lot sooner for me than for most of you, and I pray it to be so, uh, I will breathe my last. My family will weep. The rest of the world will rejoice. But in that funeral message, they will say a few nice things about me and then take me out and put me in the ground. And as my friend likes to say, then they'll all go to the church recreation hall and eat potato salad. And uh, so that will be the end of Paige Patterson physically. But don't make any mistake about it. When I come to the chilly waters of Jordan and set the first foot in that river, I will awaken in the presence of the Lord. There's nothing to be feared, nothing to be squeamish about. Oh, listen, it's a rejoicing matter. And we don't weep for our loved ones who know the Lord. We only weep because of the temporary separation. We ought to rejoice in every loved one. And if my funeral gets to be a sad funeral anyway, I pray you'll stand up and object to it and say, will somebody get a little religion and get this right? It's a time of rejoicing when you go home to be with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But Paul was a good Jew, and he really didn't like the idea of being separated from his body. 
to be alive and experiencing all the glories of heaven, knowing everyone experiencing the Lord, but out of the body as a spirit being at that time did not appeal to the Apostle Paul. So he said, what I'm doing in 2 Corinthians 5 is I'm hoping for the resurrection of the dead to come. I'm hoping Jesus will return, and I'll be caught up in the air to be with him. And instantly, in the twinkling of an eye, not the blinking of an eye, that's way too slow, in the twinkling of an eye, I will be given my resurrection body. Well, that's what Paul says is going to happen. Redemption's final act is the giving of a resurrection body. Well, you say, what kind of a body is it? Well, I don't know. I hadn't had one yet. I'm looking forward to it. All we can go on is the resurrected body of our Lord. And when our Lord came out of the grave, uh, there was substance to his body. How do we know that? Because Mary Magdalene grabbed hold of his ankles. Folks, she had hold of something. And Jesus had to say to her, stop clinging to me. I have not yet ascended to my Father. When he walked into the upper room, people were paralyzed in fear, and they backed away from him. He said, it is I, be not afraid, and they backed further off. Well, he saw that they were not going to believe unless they saw a demonstration. So he said, give me a piece of the fish and the honeycomb. And they did, and he ate it. Folks, it didn't just fall on the floor. It was subsumed into some sort of celestial digestive tract, and so he actually ate fish and honeycomb. Now, those two don't go together very well in my mind. I, I can't imagine what it tasted like, but he did it. And uh, so he ate it, and he swallowed it, and he was real. You say, well, now, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't you remember? He came through the doors without opening them. Mm, you're right. Because when you look at that wall over there, you'd say, that wall is solid. No, it's not. It has more space than it does matter in it. It scientifically has molecules racing around, but there's more space than there is matter in it. Take Dr. Smith, there's more space than there is matter in him also. So technically, there should be no problem in putting him right through that wall. We just don't know how to do it without a terrible collision of the atoms. And so we can't do it, but God knows how. And the resurrected body will no longer be bound by the space-time continuum. It won't suffer any more pain. Those of you that are here in pain today, more of you by the minute, I know, but those of you that are in pain, the pain will be done away. I'm promising you that you'll never suffer that illness again. Those of you who have sorrow in your heart, God is going to wipe away every tear, and there shall be no more sorrow nor crying in heaven. Now, I hadn't found it yet. I'm looking for it. It's got to be in the Bible somewhere. I am absolutely convinced that the Bible says there'll be no more obesity in heaven. Even so, come Lord Jesus, the resurrected body is going to be a wonderful, exciting body to spend eternity with God. And so, we are in the resurrection chapter. 
Therefore, we ought to expect since every other verse in the chapter has to do with the resurrection, we ought to expect this verse to have something to do with the resurrection. And sure enough, it does. Take a look at it one more time. Otherwise, what shall they do who are baptized for the dead? Now, you see that little preposition for? That's why you got to take Greek. Doesn't matter if you're a music student. You ought to take Greek. Amen, Dr. Day? Thank you. (laughs) Enroll that man right after chapel. All right. So you ought to take Greek. And here I'm going to demonstrate for you why. But even with English preposition four, what if I said to you today, last night I went to the store for my wife. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment. I could mean a couple of things. Maybe there is a wife store (laughs) where I go to purchase a wife. So, I went in order to get my wife. I, I went to purchase her. But, of course, I already have one, so that would not be biblically correct. So I'm going to have to contextually interpret. I went to the store for my wife to mean that she had something she wanted, and I went to the store in order to get it for her. Now, it's the same word for, but when you look in an English dictionary under the word for, you'll be surprised to discover that it has 22 different nuances of meaning. And only the context determines what it means. Would you believe that that is also true for this Greek preposition, huper? Huper may mean in order to obtain. It may be a preposition of substitution in our place. That's how it's usually used. But when you read A.T. Robertson's large grammar of the Greek New Testament, you discover that when huper is used with the ablative case, that it has a totally different meaning than what is expected. So, let me read it to you with the new meaning. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized with reference to death? What will they do who are baptized concerning death? You see, we are baptized concerning death. Well, you know, you're making out a case for that, but are there any other cases of it in the Bible? We'll look at 2 Corinthians 8.23 sometime. I'm writing to you concerning Titus. I'm not writing to you because of Titus's uh, work. Uh, It's not in order to obtain some. It's not substitutionary. I'm not writing to you to substitute some for Titus. I'm writing to you concerning Titus. Or in 2 Thessalonians 2.1, I'm writing to you concerning, who pair again, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or in Romans 9.23, 
27. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. And then he gives us valuable information concerning God's plan for his ancient people Israel. In every one of those cases, it's the preposition who pair. And in every case, it means concerning. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized concerning the dead? If the dead do not rise, it's a false testimony. If the dead do not rise, we're talking about something that isn't true. We are preaching a false gospel. If the dead do not rise, why then are they baptized? And one more time, who pair the dead concerning the dead? Baptism is about death, burial, and resurrection. Now, why is it important to baptize by immersion? The answer to that is not because Jesus was baptized by immersion. He was. It says that he went down into the water and he came up out of the water And besides which, that's the way the Jews were baptized in the mikvah oath all around Jerusalem. The Jew walked down into the water and practiced self-baptism. He said the Shema of Israel, hear, O Lord, uh, hear, O God, the Lord thy God is one Lord, and immersed himself in the water. It was always by immersion. And when John the Baptist added a wrinkle to it and added an administrator, why did he do that? Because the dead can't bury themselves. That's why. And so there had to be in the Christian understanding of baptism an administrator. John the Baptist is baptizing in the Jordan River. Yes, Jesus was baptized that way, but that's not why you do it. I know why you do it. Baptizo, the verb, To baptize means to immerse. Well, it certainly does. When a ship sinks at sea, it is said to be baptizo. It is immersed in the water. That's true. But that's still not a good reason why you baptize only by immersion. The reason why you baptize by immersion is it is a symbol of death, burial, and resurrection. And it's not an optional symbol. It's not something you do or do not do up to yourself. I want to tell you what, Barry McCarty and I first got to know each other. We were pulled together by that concept, which has often been mistaken. Baptism is not essential to your salvation. You can come to Christ at 35,000 feet just before you use your parachute and jump out of the plane. You don't have to fall in the Gulf of Mexico in order to be saved. <laughs> and so it's not essential to salvation, but it doesn't mean it's not essential. It is essential to following Christ. Make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teach them all things I have commanded you. That is the word of God to the church. Baptism is not optional. It is inconceivable that a man would take of the grace of Almighty God and be born again and refuse to be baptized. It is not even conceivable. And so it is critically important. Now I'll close with that in just a second and show you why. So baptism is as though you were dead. 
Baptism is concerning death, burial, and resurrection. May I point out one more thing. When we do not instruct people properly in baptism, we need not be surprised when they grow up at about 17 or 18 years of age, make another profession of faith, because they have no memory of their baptism. They have no memory of their profession of faith. And that's why I'm opposed to baptizing children too early. Now, wait. Don't you go out here and misquote me. I have enough problems that I create for myself. (laughs) Don't need you to create any. I didn't say a child could not be saved. Child can be saved. I knew how to be saved at age six as well as I know today. And so you can understand I wasn't saved at age six. I wasn't saved until I was nine, but I understood what was going on. Three most miserable years of my life between six and nine. When I was fighting the Spirit of God and refusing to to respond to Him. But uh, I'm grateful that I wasn't baptized any earlier. And I've often thought our church would have been better to have said to me, just wait a while, wait till this person like the Anabaptists did, waited until they were at least uh, 15, 16 years of age when they really understood the nature of their sin and when it could be communicated to them that to follow Christ was to die to the old life. Dying to the old life. I'm not going to live that way anymore. Now, I'm going to sin. But never again am I going to enjoy it. Never again am I going to be happy about it. And I'm not going to live that way anymore. I'm going to bury the old man. And a new man has risen to walk in a new life with Christ. And as a part of that new man walking in the new life with Christ, let me tell you what happens. When you get out of line, the church has church discipline. And instead of being fighting mad about it, why on earth are these people doing this to me? Don't they know who I am? Yes, they know who you are. You said the old man died and a new man came to live in his place and they want to know what happened to the new man. Have you gone back and dug up the old guy again? No, and so church discipline follows, and folks, there'll never be church discipline in our churches until we start at the right place, which is with baptism, explaining to people that when they are raised up from the waters, they are painting the picture of the resurrection to new life that has happened as a result of their salvation. So what should we do with those that are baptized as though dead? It has no meaning. It is a mere ritual. It has no significance. It's just doing something to be religious, unless it has to do with death, burial, and resurrection. It was January 21st, 1525, just a few years after the Reformation had begun in 1517 under Martin Luther. The little group of People gathered together in the home of Felix Mons just a few blocks from the Grossmünster in Switzerland. You can still go there and visit the place now. 
And they gathered together that night because they had a growing conviction about all of this. They had been meeting in Zwingli's office in the Grossmünster. Ulrich Zwingli was a reformer and a fine reformer. And he got almost there. In fact, the truth of the matter is he did get there in his thinking. The reason he got there is what these men were doing was studying the Greek New Testament. Now, folks, an open Greek New Testament and an open mind will make a Baptist every time. And that's exactly what they were doing. They were studying the Greek New Testament. And they said to Ulrich, who was the pastor, Master Zwingli, we have to take this all the way. We have to do all that the Bible requires of us. We were baptized as babies. We didn't know what on earth was going on when our parents did it. And we have since come to trust Christ as Savior. We need to carry this out. Zwingli said, I'll ask the city council about it. They said, ask the city council, my. The city council has nothing to say when God has already spoken. And we've got to do this because God says do it. Zwingli asked the city council, and the city council said to him essentially what Luther was told. You can change the doctrine any way you want to, but don't change the practice of the church. We'll have another peasant's revolt, and you can't do that. And so they both knuckled under, but the little group of people who met that night in the house of Felix Mons were determined to do it God's way all the way. And they knew that there was inherent within infant baptism a horrible precedent that most folks would grow up thinking that because they were a part of the church, they were okay, when in fact they had never been born again. And they were determined as a missionary group and as the only evangelistic group in the Reformation, they were determined to see to it that people came to know Christ as Savior. And so they met that night in the home of months, and they talked about it, and somebody brought up the fact that if they did it, they would probably all die for it. And they said, and what is death? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. If God requires us to give our life for the gospel, and by the way, all of them were dead within two years, then we must be prepared to do exactly that. And at that point, John Blaurock, who was uh, the most impetuous of the group, appealed to them and said, for God's sake, baptize me. And so they brought in a pail of water. And with a dip, they poured it over them. That's a fusion, not sprinkling, but a fusion. And they poured it over them, and all of them were baptized. And the first Anabaptist congregation was formed there uh, as Anabaptism then began to sweep across the country. And of course, it was not a discovery. It was a rediscovery because right here in this little booklet, you've got baptism, baptismal uh, founts that go back from the first to the fifth century all across North Africa. You find them everywhere. That's the way the whole church baptized originally. They were just rediscovering believer's baptism. 
but they didn't yet understand immersion. Two months later, they are down at Schaffhausen on the Rhine River. And uh, Conrad Grebel has preached a great sermon. And he gives the invitation to come to Christ. And that's what they did in those days. They preached and gave an invitation to come to Christ. I loved uh, uh, so much our message yesterday from uh, Dr. Earn, As he said, always give an invitation. It doesn't always have to be the same kind of one, but people will always be invited to come to Christ. And so they would do that, and people would come. And when they looked up to their amazement, there stood a Roman Catholic monk. His name was Hans Ullemann. Ullemann was a very well-educated monk. He had been studying his Greek New Testament privately. And you remember what I told you about a Greek New Testament and an open mind? And unknown to them, this monk, Uleman, had come to Christ. And he didn't know that anybody else saw it. And when he came and heard these Anabaptist preachers, he said, my goodness, they've understood it too. I need to identify with them. And so when the invitation was given, there stood monk Uleman. And so they brought out the pail. And they were about to baptize him by fusion. And he said, what is that? And they said, that's the baptismal font. And he said, you haven't read far enough yet. That's the baptismal font pointing down to the Rhine River. He said, you take me in there and cover me up. And they said, oh, my goodness, we never thought of that. And so they took Hans Ullemann down into the Rhine River and they baptized him by immersion and gradually that became the form of baptism. In fact, only four months later, Ullemann preached a revival in the area of St. Gallen and when he gave the invitation, more than 500 people came forward. There was still ice on the river. They broke the ice up, and Ullemann baptized 500 new converts in the Sitter River. Not a one of them will ever forget their baptism. No. <laughs> now, sweet friends, this is deadly serious business. It's not essential to salvation, but it is essential to following Jesus. Make up your mind whether you're going to follow Jesus or not. If you're going to follow Jesus, make baptism all it was intended to do, to be. It's baptism concerning the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord.